0: You don't know what the next guy is making, so you don't know how to determine your worth. When you don't know what your worth is, that's when other people will tell you what your worth is. How do you negotiate that?
1: Welcome to the ShakeOut Podcast. I'm your host, Kate Van Buskert. In this episode, we're joined by one of Canada's most accomplished sprinters, Aaron Brown. Aaron is a three-time Olympian, a two-time Olympic medalist. He's also a world championship and Commonwealth Games medalist, and one of only two Canadian men ever to break both 10 seconds in the 100 meter and 20 seconds in the 200 meter. Aaron is also a father. He's a motivational and hilarious content creator and the founder of Kingsley TV. And he joined us last week from Nairobi, Kenya, where he was fresh off a victory at the Kip Kano Classic in his 200 meter season opener. Erin, I can hear the birds chirping behind you and your setting looks absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us all the way from Kenya today to be part of the podcast.
0: Oh man, thanks for having me.
1: And Maddie also is just coming off of an incredible performance from uh, California over the weekend where she broke two minutes in the 800 for the first time. Welcome co-host Maddie Kelly and congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kate. I'm on a call with two superstars right now. Um, I did not do anything amazing over the weekend, but it was fun cheering you both on. So thanks for that. And <laughs> say,
2: Kate, this weekend is your one year anniversary of a pretty amazing race. So we can we can take that in for a moment because the amount of after that race, people who texted me and said, Holy crap, Kate Van Buskirk, and I said, I know. <laughs>
1: Thanks, Maddie. Th- those th- those who knew knew. <laughs> That's right. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> yes, um, it was a very exciting weekend of racing. Maddie and I are going to break down all of the results a little bit later. But first, again, we have Aaron Brown on the show today um, to talk a bit about your how your season's going, what you're looking forward to this summer, Aaron, but also about a piece that you wrote recently for CBC's Players' Own Voice. So we're going to get into all of that, but right off the bat, um, take us through your race over the weekend. You ran twenty point oh five, I believe, and you looked so good doing it. T- take oh, us thanks. through that two hundred.
0: Uh yeah. So it was my first two hundred of the season. Um, looking at my twenty twenty one season, I kind of felt like I did things wrong, and I ran too many two hundreds in the year. I, I don't even know how many I ran like fourteen or fifteen or something like that. Is far too much. Uh, towards the end of the season, I was just kind of over it, and I didn't want to run anymore. Um, so. I said this year, I'm going to balance it out a little bit more and take a more methodical approach and make sure that I'm primed and ready to go, uh, come the world championships. And so far so good, you know, I've opened up my season with the four by four and four by one I ran four, one hundreds, uh, and this is my first 200. So I felt good out there. Um, execution was pretty good. Um, there's always things you can clean up after your first race, but I have a good starting point for the rest of the season and I like where it's headed. So. Got another run in Doha in a few days on um, Friday, I believe. Um, So looking to improve from there. But, you know, I'm just taking it one race at a time and and working on my flaws from last year and just trying to be a stronger sprinter this season.
1: That's awesome. And again, like you're obviously well on your way with that already with the season, you know, having sort of just begun. Um, What are some of the things you said you want to be like a stronger sprinter? You want to be, you know, clean up a few things from last year. What are a couple of the technical things that you're like looking to improve on?
0: I was running really good curves last year, but I was finishing strong. So that last like 60 meters ish was where I was fading and people were playing away. So uh, I was really encouraging that in this race, I actually had a strong finish and that's where actually where I won the race is like the last little bit. Uh, it was me and my teammate Kyrie King going at it off the curve and I was able to, you know, edge him out at the end. So um, that was encouraging to see. And i just want to be able to finish even stronger. Cause I know there's going to be really strong finishers out there. Like the top guys are all, Closers, um, you know, your Andre de Grasses, your Noah Lyles, your Arian Knightens, Fred Curleys, uh, Kenny Benericks, those kind of guys that are going to be running deep times um, are going to be the closers. So I got to be able to, you know, at least stave them off if I run a really good curve.
2: Aaron, what do you think? Like, is your goal to run both the 100 and the 200 at Worlds?
0: <sighs> See that? I'm still trying to figure out. I want to make sure that if I'm doing the 100, that I'm actually going out there to do something, you know? minimum make the finals and then you know try to at least do something i don't want to just run it just for the sake of running it like there's so many talented guys in these fields that uh i'm only going to double if i feel like i'm it's gonna be worth my time otherwise i'll just put all my eggs in the 200 meter basket and run the 200 like i did last year in tokyo but uh, i'm going to continue running the 100 and see how it shakes out how i end up doing i'll definitely run at trials and You know, I always said, if I run fast enough, then anything's possible and I'll put it on the table. But for now, I'm still undecided.
1: I was going to say, Aaron, it's kind of crazy because the last time that there was actually like a full Canadian championships was 2019. Because of course, in 2020, there wasn't um, a a trials and then 2021, there kind of was, but a lot of people were able to not attend it because of the pandemic as well. And going back to 2019, I mean, you had such an incredibly successful meet there and ended up as our 100-meter champion as well. So, I mean, if we're looking back to that and also kind of (laughs) pairing that with how well you're doing in your season so far, it seems like it's all good things to come. So it's super exciting watching uh, your early success, and I'm sure it'll continue. So way to go. It's been a lot of fun to watch.
0: (laughs) Appreciate it. Thank you.
1: So one of the reasons that we wanted to chat with you today is again, um, you recently wrote this piece for CBC's Players Own Voice, and we'll link that in the show notes to the episode. Uh, it's inc- it's just such an incredible piece. Like the the article is super compelling, um, really really interesting stuff. And you titled it "The Track and Field Business Model Needs an Overhaul." So we're going to kind of dig into like the contents of this, but right off the bat, like what was the impetus for writing this? What spurred you to decide that this was something you wanted to tackle?
0: Uh, So a while back when I was at practice, you know, me and my teammates were talking. And one of the things we were talking about was like the business model of track and field. You know, there's a lot of things that we feel like we can improve and get better. And we're comparing it to other sports and how we feel like we fall short and things we can improve on. So When I left practice and heard what they were saying, um, the conversation was just on my mind. So I tweeted out something like, uh, we have to change the game and track and field athletes have to stop devaluing themselves or something like that. So what I was meaning by that was there's so much value that we leave on the table. I feel like we have been conditioned to think that we're only worth so much and we don't even try to change it. We just accept it as an inevitability And the sport is what it is. And when, like, a lot of people don't even try to change it, they're like, oh, that's just track. But it's like, no, like, a lot of the athletes have so much value that's untapped that we actually have to go out and, I guess, show the world what we can do and what we can offer. You know, there's so many different ways other than just running fast or throwing far or being able to jump far, whatever it is that we can offer. And I just feel like we need to use our platforms better, especially in 2022 when we have so many various things at our our fingertips for us to market ourselves and and show our our worth that we need to take control of it. And we, as a sport, entirely almost have no power, it seems like. And we concede all the power to the governing bodies and thus we get left with whatever they give us. And I feel like we're the commodity We're the ones that bring the value to the sport. So why don't we take control of that and band together to make change? And so when I tweeted that out, you know, um, it was just a simple tweet. Didn't really think anything of it. Just kind of threw threw it out there into the universe. And uh, I got a message from a CBC sports writer that I've written before for. And he said, you know, I'll give you a couple hundred dollars if you want to write an article on it and expand on your thoughts. You know, I value your opinion. So I'm like, all right. It took me longer than I expected because I realized I had so much more that I wanted to say. And I actually, the the piece was like double what it was. He told me to write 800 words and I wrote like 2000 (laughs) and I didn't even get started on everything that I wanted to say. I'm like, God damn, like there's a lot I could say on this, but uh, I think this is a good like starting piece. Um, And it was really just to get people thinking and part of the conversation. That was my hope for it, that people would see that this is an issue and that we can actually do something about it. And maybe, you know, something comes of it, something that creates change, or if not, at least people are talking about it and people are aware of it.
2: Well, and even Aaron, like, I don't think people realize how little insight us as track athletes even have into what each other are making, right? Because there's no contract transparency. Right. So I just think like bringing this to light for the general public in a really, really well explained, thoughtful piece of writing to let people know that this is like you know this is not only like a surprise to the general public this is a surprise like I have athletes asking me like all the time you know like like what did you get for this or how does this work or like and it's it's taboo to talk about money Mm -hmm. but then when we don't talk about it nothing improves and we're at the mercy of these big companies so anyway I was I was thrilled I was thrilled to read it In your own experience, what has your relationship been like with earning money in track and fields? But you know whether that be companies carding external support from maybe you know someone who isn't necessarily a a Nike or an Adidas or whoever it is.
0: Right. Um, So I would consider myself one of the more fortunate athletes. Um, You know, I know similar athletes from different countries or. Different events, you know, that have achieved equivalent to what I've have aren't as lucky. So I've had I've been supported by Nike my entire career. I, I got a, a contract right out of college, and I've also had several sponsors um, throughout my career, more so lately than previously. But yeah, I, I would say I was fortunate, but I I also would say that across the board, whether it's people who are unsponsored and not making anything, to the people at the top of the sport that carry it, I feel like all of us can make more and all of us are worth more than what the opportunities have been presented. And that's because I feel like the sport itself isn't worth what it should be. Um, So I feel like it's like, if we change the way the business model of track is, it's like a rising tide where everybody will start to get closer to what they're worth. And one of the main reasons why I wanted to write the piece is not even for myself. It's just seeing so many other people that are so talented in the sport struggle and either have to leave the sport because of tough decisions or have to struggle through it and just not get better because, you know, they have to work a nine to five or, you know, find odd hours where they can work and make money elsewhere or, or have GoFundMe pages where they could support themselves for a training camp or to pay for a physio or to fly to some place. It's just like, come on, if this is a, a sport that is supposed to be a professional sport, the business side of it is lacking. And there needs to be some type of infrastructure where everybody's supported that's at a certain level. I understand that, like, that's, that's another problem, too, is we don't know the distinction between who's professional and who's not, right? Like, anybody could just say, hey, I'm a, I'm a pro. They could just throw up in their bio and say, like, hey, today I'm a pro. Or they could buy a Nike top from somebody and claim that they're professional. But, like, come on. Like, if I buy, if I go to, um, you know, Canadian Tire and, and buy a, a hockey jersey and say, hey, I'm in the NHL. I'm not in the NHL you know that there's a criteria of what makes you an NHL player. Where is that in track and field? And I feel like if we had that distinction, then we can start taking care of the people that are actually meeting that criteria of what is a professional athlete or a professional track and field athlete and support those people, you know? So we need to first identify who are the professionals and then find a way to support them so that everybody is at least meeting some type of uh, living standard where we don't have people who are struggling to, you know pay their rent for this month because they're waiting for prize money that's due to them from three months ago or whatever and they don't know like okay when is the money coming like you can't pay your rent on ious you know so it's just like ah man i could go on and on and on about there's so many things that we could fix in this sport but like i don't even remember where we started what the original question was but there's just, just a lot to change <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, it's so good. It's like Maddie and I are just sitting here nodding along like crazy.
2: <laughs> I have waited 18 months for prize money from USATF. Right. Or like pacing money or hotel reimbursements. Like right, right, it is I'm like, still like waiting like on
1: pacing from last year.
2: It's right. years you
1: wait for this money
2: right. or like contract negotiations. Yeah. You can wait and it comes in a lump sum and you can wait. 11 months to get paid your salary for the year. Like, where else does that happen?
1: That's, it's so true. And I mean, you can hear it on this call. Like, we all just, it's funny because we're in different events, you know, we're, we're you know, maybe have, you know, different levels of success and stuff, but we're all kind of experiencing very, very similar things. So Aaron, I want to dig into that a bit more because you just talked, you just give the great example of like, you can't just go buy a hockey jersey and say that you're in the NHL. So what do you think some of the reasons are that we have such a hard time with this compared to other sports. Like what are other pro sports doing right? that track and field
0: can maybe learn from their models. Well, first of all, like I said, you know exactly who's the professionals and who's not. So once you have that distinction, you know how many people you're going to supplement and how many people you're going to fund. So I feel like track has to get better at having a cutoff. So like, let's say the top 40 in your event or top, 25, whatever the cutoff it is that you want to make it. Then you say those people are professional levels and have some type of ranking system that's like robust and people actually can follow along with criteria that's open and easy to follow. Um, know exactly who the people are that are per the professionals. That's what the biggest distinction is between our sports and others. Um, in other sports, you know, you know where the money's coming from. You know what the contracts are, you know, the terms of the contracts, you know what the market is for a certain level of athlete. So let's say in the NBA, if you have a Steph Curry, you know he's worth X amount of dollars because LeBron James worth X amount of dollars and they're on a similar footing. They're both MVP type players. So if LeBron's making 30 million a year, when Steph's contract's up, he'll go and say, hey, LeBron's making 30 million. So I'm going to piggyback off that and say, I should be worth somewhere around that um, ballpark. In track, we have no idea. Even people in our own event, you don't know what the next guy is making, so you don't know how to determine your worth. And that means when you don't know what your worth is, that's when other people will tell you what your worth is. And how do you negotiate that? How do you say, hey, the market says I'm worth this? Like It's like, no, we're telling you you're this. What What, what, what evidence do you have to dispute that? You kind of just have to take whatever they offer. So we have to have some type of transparency where we actually know what the next person is making. And that could be from getting rid of the NDAs and um, shoe contracts. That could be from having some type of, you know, set amount of money that we're making from the world athletics that like, if you meet this criteria, if you're a professional, you make, I don't know, 30 K a year or something. I don't know. Some some type of money where it's like a standard where we know at least you're making a minimum that. And then you can build from there with your prize money and your bonuses and your other sponsors and whatever the case may be. But I personally feel like a big issue as well in our sport is that it's subsidized by the shoe companies. And so they get deified and people all, you know, get mad at them and they're like, oh, you know, Nike sucks or Adidas sucks or whatever, and talk bad about them. But like, why is it up to them to subsidize the sport? You know, why are we looking at shoe companies to do that? They should be definitely the role in the sport that they should subsidize it in, in some form or fashion because people are wearing their products and that's great, but you don't look at Nike to carry the salaries of the NBA players. That's secondary. You know, their, their main source of income comes from the NBA. The the teams are paying. them. So we need to figure out how we can get our governing body, which is the world athletics or uh, the diamond leagues or the continental tour, or even our um, athletics Canada or something like that to have a, um, a certain amount of money that they're paying out so that like the professional athletes that meet that criteria are able to live and support themselves. You know, I feel like, mainly the world athletics, there should be a a certain mo- amount of money that everyone's guaranteed if you hit a certain level and if you hit like a ranking or whatever. And that way, the shoe companies is secondary and we don't have to like sup- uh, rely so heavily on the income that they make. And if we have money, if, if that's not our main source of income, then they have to change their model because if they're giving out the majority of the money for the athletes, they're going to want a lot in return. And so they're going to want to control the sport. And they're going to want to have all these clauses in there and stuff that makes it difficult for people to maintain their contracts because they want to recruit as much as they can because they're giving out the majority of the money. So you got to think of it from a business sense where it's like, okay, what makes sense? You know, they, you have to think about what they're getting in return and you can't just think about what the athlete is. That's why I said in the article that you have to partner with these governing bodies and not sort of like go at each other. Like we should be working together. And that's why we need like an athlete union that can speak on behalf of the athletes that works in unison with these governing bodies so that we're all winning. Cause the more th- the athletes are worth, the more the product is worth, which is the sport. And that means the governing bodies are making more too because the athletes are worth more and they're in their sport that you're um, providing. So it just, it just, we need to marry, um, you know, the efforts between athletes and governing bodies so that we're all working together to increase the overall value of our sport, and I feel like there's not a lot of unison
2: Well, and it sounds like you're like essentially for a league minimum yes is what it
0: would be because there's
2: yeah there's a league minimum and the MLB and tons of federations, and it's it's not great money, but it's livable, and yeah we don't we don't have anything like that, and i don't and I don't think people realize that
0: there's, there's the argument of some people think like, Oh, certain events are worth more than others. And, you know, you have certain events getting taken out of like the diamond league or whatever, but it's like, if you're going to have the event, it, it, there needs to be some type of support for every event. Otherwise, why do you have it? You know, it's like, if it's going to be a professional sport, we have to determine what sports or what events meet that professional um, quota. And if you're going to say these 30 events or whatever are all worth it, we're going to put them in at the world championships, then there should be a way to subsidize athletes in all sports and from all countries with a league minimum, like you said. Like there should be some type of standard of living that we can at least rely on that and then build from there, depending on how successful you are and how, how popular you are.
1: So that leads really well into, you know, kind of one of the things you were talking about, which is the fact that there are these multiple ways of getting like making a living in the sport, right? Whether it's contracts or funding. But if a lot of our money does come from that funding, one of the things that's been brought up a lot lately is that There's such an emphasis on medals. And you talk about this a lot in the piece as well. Um, One of the concerns, you know, with the Canadian organization Own the Podium, for instance, that's been talked about a lot publicly by athletes, is that when all you focus on are medals, then it can not only skew like how we value like financially value athletes but it can also lead to all kinds of other problems like like not prioritizing athletes health and well-being you know there's a lot of issues that go into that you you write a lot about the metal piece in this so i'm curious what in your mind the impact is of having such a strong emphasis on metals and why you see that as problematic
0: yeah so like i said in the piece um there's good things about the metals right you can discern between who are the ones that are able to get it done at the highest level and there is meritocracy at play, right? So if you're able to succeed at the highest level at the Olympics or the world championships or the trials, wherever they're giving out your medal, then you could say, I was able to achieve something and you have a tangible way of proving that, that value, right? I feel like it's problematic when that's the only thing because that kind of signifies that that's the only thing of worth, And that's just not true. Like you're telling me if I have an off day at the championships or if I have a slight injury or if it's just a historical year in the event and everyone's just running out of their minds and I come forth that I'm not worth anything anymore. You know, and especially in a sport where like a hundredth of a second could be the difference between being on the team and being off the team or being on the podium or being off the podium. So it's like, you're you're extracting all the value of the rest of the field and giving it all to the medalists. And with that, mo- that model, the way it's structured, you're guaranteeing that only three people per event every single time are gonna be of value. And the rest, you don't have to give anything to because they're not on the podium. So it's a great way to harness all of the equity and the worth and say, we'll just pay a few people and the rest will just get tossed to the side and get scraps and then we'll, we'll keep the rest. You know, like it's a, it's a beautiful business model if you're, if you're greedy and not trying to spread the wealth, but it's very problematic if you're actually trying to have a functioning sport that, that supports its athletes. You know, like imagine if the NHL only played the players, if they made the Stanley cup finals, you're telling me all the rest of the teams are worth nothing now. Like, no, like we know there's value in each of those teams. They have their own fan bases. They have their good moments and bad moments moments. And they still hold that whether they make it or not. And they still reward those who succeed at the highest level with, you know, bonuses and uh, they win their trophies and whatever the case may be. But they don't just shoo everybody else to the side and say you're worth nothing now. And, you know, you're not going to make any money this year. You can't support yourself and uh, sucks to suck, you know, better luck next year. And it makes it hard to have a functioning sport that could survive because the majority of the field is seen as not worthy. Well, that's
1: the irony, right? Is that in order to have a race, you need a whole bunch of people that aren't coming top exactly. three. So right, wh- right. how in the world can you expect that you're going to have, like you said, the sport? I mean, you're, you're, you're on a call with two women who are probably never going to be Olympic medalists. Like we we totally get this, right? Like, What does it say to us athletes who are both Olympians, but didn't win the medal that we can't, like I, frankly, I'm taking a year off because I can't afford to run this year. I went to the Olympics last year and I cannot, I'm that's why I'm not competing right now. I right. can't afford it. Right. I, I just can't afford to do my sport. And I'm the fifth fastest Canadian woman ever in the 5,000.
0: Yeah. That is the biggest issue with our sport is like, you'll hear so many cases like that. Like you'll have national champions or people who have done great things and they feel like they've achieved nothing because they haven't medaled. And that's what I was saying in the piece It's like, you have so many people who feel like they have no worth, they have no value because they don't have that medal. And it's just like if I don't have a medal, I'm not worth anything. But you, like you just said, you're the fifth fastest ever in your country, and you're an Olympian. What is the, what is the value of an Olympian these days? Like it's it's like a college degree, a, a bachelor's degree. It's like okay, cool. You know, throw it up on the wall and that's that. It's you get your handshake, you you know can say congrats, get a tattoo, and go on your way. But it's like it should be worth more than that. There should be a minimum that at least if you achieve this, you can at least continue in your freaking sport. Like you shouldn't have to, you know, make life choices when you're already succeeding to a degree, if you want to continue or not, because you can't sustain yourself that like, how do you have a business model where half the sport is trying to figure out how they're going to sustain themselves? It's just not, it's not sustainable. And this is the thing too. Like, People have no idea about our sport and are very ignorant to, you know, the ins and outs of our sport and just see what they promote, which is the medalists. might look at this and be like, well, just run faster, or you're just not good enough. But here's the problem with that. If you don't have enough money to support yourself, you don't have enough money to do the things you need in order to excel, right? How are you supposed to pay for the physios? How are you supposed to get your massages? How are you supposed to buy your supplements? How are you supposed to do all these things? And spend all your time on your craft, you know, at practice, training, going to rehab, getting your sleep, all that, when you're supposed to find ways to pay the bills. Like you, you if you if you don't know where your next meal is coming from, how are you supposed to focus all your energy on your sport? And you have you're at a huge disadvantage from those who can't support themselves because they don't have to worry about that. So how are you supposed to beat those people when you have life coming at you every single day and you have to make decisions on how you're gonna fund yourself? right? Well, you have to look at ways to bridge the gap between potential and actually achieving at the highest level. And I feel like that's what another issue is with focusing on just the medals. You don't have any bridge to get there. So the people that have the potential and show that from an early age kind of just fall through the cracks if they just don't excel at the highest levels and continue to stay on top. If they fall through even a little bit or have an injury or you know just have a down year if they are no longer seen as someone you want to support because they're on this metal path, how do you get back there? You know? And it's just so unfortunate because I see it all the time.
1: Absolutely. And it's such an equity issue. I mean, talking about, I, you were really um, like humble in the beginning by saying that you recognize that there are other athletes who are very, you know, accomplished, but aren't maybe compensated the way that you are. But I mean, I think about that all the time with my situation. I happen to have a very supportive family who was able in a financial situation to lend me the money necessary for me to be able to train for four months overseas for the Olympics last year. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, like I recognize that that's a huge privilege that I have, that I'm in a situation where I have like I've got a, I've got a safety net. Yeah. I, I'm privileged enough to be able to do this because I choose to. I'm at a point where that's no longer a viable option for me because you know, you can't just borrow indefinitely, but there's so many people who will never have their potential realized. And to your point, like if we even just see this, even if we take away like the moral reasons for there, for there to be equity, even if we just focus on the business and success model, you're denying the opportunity for so many potential medalists. To come up and realize how good they could be right because if you can't there's kids who maddie and i talk about this we're very honest with young athletes when they're coming into the sport and they're talking about wanting to you know run post collegiately or be pro or whatever it is we're very honest that like i don't want to quash your dreams hundred percent go for it but have your eyes open to how what this is going to be like because it is not easy and you can't expect that you're going to be financially rewarded for it
2: read get a job
0: <laughs> yeah get a job yeah. you need
2: skills in case it doesn't work out and in the meantime you need to be able to pay your way
0: yep and that's the thing too is this sport is such a sacrifice because you're spending all day long working on your craft that if you, it doesn't work out and you in, you invest all this time into it and and resources from other people and it doesn't pay off like there's no guarantee it's gonna pay off, so there's a a good chance that like you could put all this work and at the end of the day after six, seven years, whatever, there's nothing waiting for you at the end. Now you have to start from scratch because you, you haven't been building your skills in, in the workforce or whatever. So now it's like, oh crap, like what am I gonna do now? So, you know, you're, you're putting people in a, a dilemma where it's like stunting their growth um, corporate wise, professional wise uh, for their career after track because you have to be locked into what you're doing now and putting all your energy into what you're doing now to be the best that you can, but there's no guarantee. So you're making a sacrifice without even knowing if it's going to be worth it. And another thing, too, that we haven't even discussed is if you're not supporting those who show potential, why are they going to stick around? You're going to leave so many potential great athletes in our sport because they're going to go to other sports. They're going to be like, why would I choose track when I could go play soccer or I could go play football? And there's way more of a benefit if I do uh, make it. You know, so people who are very fast might use their skills on the football field because it's like, hey, I might as well give it a shot. If I'm a practice player and I can make, you know, 500K just being on the practice squad, that's way more than I'm going to make a track. So why not do that? And that's why you look at someone like a Devin Allen, like I mentioned in the article, where he's going to play for the Eagles because it's like, why not? I can make so much more there. And, and my my commodity, which is my speed, is worth so much more there because they're properly presenting it and harnessing my potential in a better business sense than they are in track it just gets misused here so why would i not go somewhere where i could actually make a better living and that's not to say he didn't make a good living in track because i'm sure he did but it's like like i said you have people who like literally can't even survive in this sport and then you have people who can survive and make decent money but compared to how much they could be they're falling short too so across the board whether you're making good money or not in this sport you could be making so much more because the entire sport has such a lowered sense of value across the board.
1: And just for some of our more marathon-inclined listeners, Aaron mentioned Devin Allen there, and he's a three-time American national champion. And he, I, I love that quote. The truth is he's worth more as an unproven NFL player than as a three-time American national champion on the track. I mean... I don't love it. It's it's really depressing, but it's a, a perfect encapsulation of what you're just what you're talking about there. Sorry, Maddie, go ahead. I
2: was gonna say, Erin. So, in terms of improving value, like what have been your because obviously social media is a big thing. It's not just social media, but it certainly can help. So, what would be your sort of tips for how you've made yourself marketable to companies? How you've you know kept I don't want to say kept Nike happy, but how you've beyond just medals, continue to prove your value to those that support you.
0: Yeah. I mean, you said not keep Nike happy, but in a sense, you want your sponsors to feel like they're getting something in return. And so beyond what I do performance wise, I try to grow my brand as much as possible. And that's kind of why I created Kingsley TV. And I post a lot on social media now because I want people to know who I am in my story. And I feel like so many people don't do this and they're missing out on so much value. And that's why also in the article, I didn't want it just to be like bashing the governing bodies and the sponsors and whatever, whatever, whatever. I also want to give some responsibility to the athletes because when you only criticize and don't take responsibility, you're ceding all the power and saying, I can't do anything. They have all the power and they're not helping me. So I'm just going to leave how it is or I'm going to quit. But it's no, it's just, it's not that. We have things we can do as well. And so you ask for tips. I think one of the easiest things people can do is tell people who you are, what your story is. Why are you in track and field? What gets you up every day to do this, uh, make the sacrifice? What are you trying to achieve? Where have you come from? How long have you wanted to be in this sport? What else do you like besides track and field? Who are you off the track? You know, people fall in love with people for their personality and their backgrounds or where they come from all the time right and, and i gave the example of tim tebow because he was a phenomenal uh, football player who won the heisman in college but as an nfl player there were eons of people who were better than him but a, he had a huge following in a fan base because of his faith background and people gravitated towards that because they saw like a guy they could identify with so even though he wasn't one of the top tier quarterbacks in the league anymore like he was in college he was still worth a huge amount because people knew who he was and they could identify with that. So people can do that in track and field as well. It's like, let people know who you are. I post um, motivational stuff because sometimes that's how I feel. I want other people to you know, go through the journey that I am, feel like they're an athlete preparing for the Olympics or the world championships or trying to run you know, a, a fast time in the, in the 100 or 200 and kind of look through my lens and say like, oh, you know, that'd be really cool to be a, a professional athlete, a professional sprinter trying to run those fast times. So I kind of put out the things that I feel in my motivational posts. I put out, um, you know, goofy, funny ones, because I know some people enjoy that and they get the uh, the humor of it and can also relate because they are also athletes and on like a smaller level. You know, they're maybe in middle school or in high school and they find something relatable in track that they can see that a professional goes through. So now they are a fan of this person because they see, Oh, they're just like me, you know? So there's so many ways where we can garner our own audiences and that increases your worth because you have people who follow you and, and know who you are. They know you have that uh, brand uh, name recognition. And when w- with that comes um, sponsors. Because if they see, hey, we see that you do really well with the younger demographic and you're really relatable to them. And we have this product that we feel like they might like. Now you can endorse that and you feel like, hey, you know, this, this uh, massage gun. You know, it it might be really good for you if you're in high school and you feel like you have tight muscles and you don't have time to go get a massage because you're in school, but use this little gun. And now, you know, your tight muscles are better, whatever it is. They can, they're going to want to partner with you because they know that you have an audience of people that relate to you and you can pitch to them. And that's why it's so myopic. If you look at just focusing on the metals, because it's like, there's so much more value that we can offer. It's not just the medalist that people want to be. It's not just the medalist that young kids look at and say like, oh, I could be that. Like, what if they're just young and like, I just want to be an Olympian. I just want to make the Olympic team and and experience that. How many Olympians do we have that could share that experience and be like, hey, this is the behind the scenes of what it's like to be an Olympian, you know, do a little vlog or uh, some type of post on social media. There's so many different things that we can do as athletes. And you don't just have to have a medal in order for people to want to be like you or relate to you or find you entertaining or uh, just want to know more about you. But it's like, we are told that the medals are the only ones with worth, so that we just accept that. And we're not going to do anything to change it or to authentically increase our own worth. You know, we just just take it and it is what it is. But like, I am a big proponent of, if they're not going to change the game for us, let's take the power ourselves. And let's do what we can and control what we can control and at least maximize that. So we can squeeze whatever value that there might be there. And whatever opportunities there might be there until the actual sport itself changes. And if it never does, at least we got the most out of it that we could.
2: But Aaron, what do you say to people who have been kind of hard on the influencer culture and track and fields? Because there are, you know, there's kind of an old guard of people that will say, you know, like, spend less time on social media, spend more time running. Like, are we here to influence? or Are we here to, you know, run fast?
0: Uh, So balance is key, right? You have to ask yourself, what is it that you're trying to accomplish? And for me, I know I'm a professional sprinter and that comes first. So I want to make sure that everything that I'm doing works towards that goal. And so I don't allow my influencing to get in the way of that. Rather, I work in harmony with it. So I look for opportunities where if I'm going to be scrolling through Instagram anyways, or posting a picture of myself chilling on the balcony in my jays or whatever that has nothing to do with track and field why not make the post about track why not you know scroll through other influencers who are in track and field so everything i do i try to make it in harmony so that it works together so that i'm not harming what i am as an athlete i'm working with it and for me personally like i said the motivational stuff that i put out for other people to benefit from i also benefit from myself because that's like holding myself accountable so if I post that, you know, like you have to work hard and whatever, whatever on social media, I have to back that up. So if I'm posting, you know, grind, get up and put in the work, I'm going to go and put in the work myself and, and live up to that and pre- practice what I'm preaching. So that can work in harmony with it. And I feel like, like you said, the old guard is very resistant to social media. And that's always going to be anything, anything that's disruptive in this in this world, I feel like is always resistant until it's not, until it's it's uniform with everybody and it just becomes the new norm. But you know, I feel like we've come a long way with social media and people are more and more opening up to it, but at the same time, we're still not fully there where it's like entrenched in everybody that's in the sport. So another issue with our sport is we have a lot of older people who run it. So they're the most resistant <laughs> to change is the older people. So if we have a coach who grew up in the good old days in the eighties, they're not going to be like, ah, oh, you know, we didn't, you know, sit on our phones and post all the time, you know, we're putting in the work whatever they're not going to be very supportive of you trying to grow your brand at the practice. So you just have to find ways to not get in the way of what they're trying to achieve, but still be able to grow your brand. So for example, my coach is one of those guys, you know, he, uh, Dennis Mitchell, he ran in the 80s and 90s. So they didn't have what we have today. He doesn't quite understand it, but he just says, when you're at practice, put your phone up. So that means off of the track, you know, if I'm doing my cool down, I already put in my work, I handled what I had to handle on the track. I can do my thing, you know? So I I don't post at the track. I just wait until I have time after I've done everything I've handled to um, make my posts or or fill my stuff. And I do it in times and hours so that I'm not getting in the way of what I have to handle at the end of the day. So I make my sponsors happy uh, by being a full-time athlete and committing to that. But at the same time, I'm also working on myself. I'm trying to grow my brand in my free time. So maybe you need to spend a little less time mindlessly scrolling on Instagram or playing video games or going partying and a little more time investing in your own brand and yourself and try to work on yourself because we are the CEOs of our own company and that company is you. So if you want to grow your brand and be bigger, then find ways to you know, put in work to develop that that doesn't get in the way of your ultimate goal, which is to be the best athlete you can
1: one of the kind of takeaways in your piece is you wrote change won't happen without a unified effort from the most influential athletes at the top of our profession. And it strikes me that like, it's pretty common to hear the types of concerns and the types of issues raised that you have from those who maybe aren't in as high profile events or um, aren't necessarily medalists, right? Like, I mean, Maddie and I kind of talk about this all the time. We're not in marquee events. We're also not, you know, at the very top of our sport. So, We kind of talk about these things all the time, but it's not often that you get an Olympic medalist sprinter sharing these things the way that you have. Is this kind of your call to action for other top athletes to help be part of the change-making process so that the whole sport is healthier?
0: I mean, ideally, you know, ideally we would band together and do something to harness our power and our value and understand that, you know, nothing's going to be given to us. Power is something that people hold on to, they don't just willingly give it up. And when you have a structure like it is now where only a certain amount of people are are given a certain amount of money, the people who are in charge of disseminating the money are not just gonna change it out of their goodness or their heart. That's not how business works, unfortunately. Like people oftentimes in business, the most shrewd businessmen and women um, are not the ones who just give up the value and, and give up the asset if they have control of it already. So with that said, the only way to get it and to change it is to demand it. And the only way you're going to demand it is the commodities, the the ones that they are seeing as worthy and uh, at the top of the sport coming together and saying, no, we don't like this. We don't accept this anymore. We're going to try and change this. And I'm not, you know, so um, naive to think that, you know, one written article is going to make everyone wake up and be like, yeah, you're right. But I at least want to throw the seed out there so that the next person might, you know, take the baton, figuratively speaking, and take this battle a little further. You know, maybe somebody who was thinking about saying something and was too shy because they didn't see anybody else saying anything. Maybe they have the courage now to say something now. And then that, you know, lights the fire of someone else. And, you know, we start get it going that way. I don't know i I honestly didn't have high hopes for anything coming out of it other than just trying to get my thoughts off <laughs> because you know the the editor asked me if I wanted to expand on my thoughts. So I'm like, you know what? I'll take that plunge and, and and be you know the courage courageous one to actually say something about this current issue. And like I said, people are disgruntled, whether it's the ones that can't support themselves all the way to the top. I know people who are Olympic medals in individual marquee events who are still mad about how they're supported because they look at what they should be worth and they're not getting it. So if we all understand that we collectively are not making the money we should be and come together, I feel like that's when we create a unified collective bargaining union that actually has teeth and can demand things and can actually make requests and and make it better for everybody in the sport. But until we have that uh, unity, we're not going to get there.
1: 100%.
0: And I I really, I really want to see us change the sport. And I hope something comes out of it that, you know, one day when my son is a lot older and he says, dad, I want to be a track and field athlete. If if that's what he wants to do, I'm not like, Ooh, you know, don't want to go down that road. That's not a very wise decision. Maybe go to a different sport or a different career because it is so difficult for a lot of people to make a living. And my hope is that by then things might change. And if I could, you know, do any kind of thing to play a part in that change. I am definitely willing to do so. And I don't want to alienate any, anybody. This isn't like the article wasn't meant to be like a hit piece or like to criticize and just, you know, talk down on, on sponsors or governing bodies or athletes or anything like that. I'm just trying to say like, there's an issue. Let's try and fix it because I'm passionate about the sport. I want to see it succeed. I want to see it grow and I want to see, These talented athletes in all kinds of events in countries, I want to see them flourish. And I'm tired of seeing so many talented athletes not being able to support themselves. It's just ridiculous. Like it just should not be that way. There are guys in the US that I know that train with that run nine seconds and are unsponsored. It's like, do you know how fast that is? So many people in this world would die to run nine seconds. People lose their minds watching NFL combines of people running you know, fast 40s and stuff. But if you're running nine seconds, do you know how fast your 40 is in that the average sprinter that could run world class times is going to dust all those guys. But it's like people only are t- like losing their minds when it's like packaged in the right way because it, it, it matters in their their sport. You know, if they how many times have you seen a, a soccer guy run something in their miles per hour is like some type of whatever, 30 miles, whatever. And they're like, oh my God, he beat you same ball say no, he would get blasted. Like he's not in the same ballpark. But people don't know that because our sport, their commodity of our sport isn't properly packaged and marketed for everybody to consume. So the average person doesn't actually know how great we are. So we have to present the sport and the talents that we have in it in a better way so that we can actually be seen for the value that we provide and the things that we can do.
1: So, Aaron, on that note of like wanting to you know, increase promotion and uh, make sure that people are following along and that the like, robust storytelling happens, give us a bit more about what you're hoping for this year. You said you're racing in Doha next. And then, of course, we've got both the World Championships and the Commonwealth Games this summer. What's getting you really pumped about the upcoming season and what are some of your main goals?
0: Yeah, i would just uh, continue to work on myself and, and improve my execution in my races. So it's early in the year. And by the time I get to that world championships, I want to be able to be at my best. So I'm looking to run personal best in both the 100 and 200 this season for sure. But really I'm just focused on my the way I execute. You know, I didn't like the way I ran my 200s last year, like I said earlier. So I'm just trying to make sure that I, I'm i a different athlete out there this year. And I've changed a lot of things in the way I approach the sport and the way I'm carrying myself as a professional. So that I'm trying to see if those changes paid off. And ultimately what I want is... Uh, to work backwards from 2024. And so each year I'm taking as like a step towards that. And so this year I'm trying to make a big leap so that I'm on pace to be where I want to be come 2024. Um, and that means, you know, having high level success at the world championships, of course, um, and on the diamond league circuit. And uh, I don't think I'll run the individual at Commonwealth. If I'm on that team, I would just go for the relay and try and win gold there. Um, just because I already have an individual in the Commonwealth and it's so soon after World championships, I'm probably going to be gas. So I'm just probably just going to, you know, get, take out the guys and hopefully we can win that. Uh, that would be great to add a gold, but um, yeah, I'm just trying to, you know, have fun with the season, enjoy the sport, be in beautiful places like Kenya, like I am now, and, and just try to get better.
1: All of our listeners will be following Aaron and all of our other Team Canada athletes through the upcoming Continental Tour meets, the Diamond Leagues, um, the Canadian Championships, World Championships and Commonwealth Games. There's so much happening this year. So exciting uh, to have such a robust team be part of it. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us this week to chat about your season and also about this really important topic. Again, we'll include all of the links in the show notes to this episode, but we're just so grateful that you took the time to join us from Kenya today. Thank you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And as a quick, uh, I guess, sign out note, another thing that uh, that I touched on in the article was supporting people who are passionate about the sport. And so whether you're a big platform or an up and coming platform, whenever people ask me to join podcasts or come on their show or whatever it is, I try to take time out of my schedule to do that because that also helps the sport grow. When you have outlets who are talking about the sport and continuing the conversation when the meets are over – that's also how you increase the value of the sport. So I'm trying to support any type of platform that I can of people who are passionate about the sport because ultimately that's what helps it grow. So I appreciate what you guys are doing to help grow the sport in Canada and, and increase that uh, visibility for you know, the athletes in Canada who are doing their thing and yourselves as well, highlighting your own achievements and all that stuff. And I think that's important and, and there should be more of that. So thank you for having me on the show and it was, it was great talking to you guys.
1: And just an update for our listeners on Friday, Andre de Aaron Brown, and Jerome Blake raced the 200 meter at the Doha Diamond League and placed fourth, fifth, and sixth, respectively, on what looked like a very windy day. These men are poised to represent Canada this summer in the 4x100 meter relay, as well as in individual sprint events. So check back with runningmagazine.ca for all the previews and results from these superstars. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Shakeout Podcast. Subscribe to our show wherever you're listening to this episode. And if you're enjoying our content, please consider leaving us a review. It really helps other people find our show. Thanks again for tuning in. Run safe and healthy, and we'll chat again soon.